We are in the midst of a series on money, and I have a question for you here uh, this morning. I want to I want to show a quote to you and see if you agree or if you disagree. So take a look at this quote behind me by Ben Witherington. Here it is. What determines how most Christians view money, lending, giving, one's economic lifestyle, and a host of related matters is not the Bible, but rather cultural factors and influences. Wow, what a statement. What determines the determining factor, Ben Witherington argues in his book, Jesus and Money, what determines how most Christians view money, lending, giving, one's economic lifestyle, and a host of related matters is not the Bible, but rather cultural factors and influences. Would you agree with that or disagree? How many would agree with that statement? Raise your hand. All right. How many would disagree? Uh, just a, a few of you. Okay. So we have the, the agrees have it. Uh, most of us would, would assent with this statement. We'd say, yeah, I think he might be on the right track. And, uh, you know, when it comes to money, we spend countless hours, uh, no doubt, listening to what society tells us to do with it. Do we not? We spend countless hours listening to what the world tells us to do with our money. Uh, we meet with financial planners. Maybe some of us read the Wall Street Journal or search online for the latest, greatest investment or a stock tip. We ask advice from wealthy people uh, we know and we try to imitate their practices. We get just about all our money advice from the world. And in truth, some of the advice is, is very good. Some of the advice is good. Sometimes we, we hear from an excellent financial planner. He gives us some ideas. We invest with him and boom, we've made a profit. Of course, following the advice of the world may also be the reason we're in the economic mess that we're in today. So there's a, a give and take relationship here. On the one hand, I'm sure the advice of the world has made many a profit. On the other hand, I'm quite confident that the advice of the world has put our economy in the state that it is today. I remember the not too distant future when this was the advice of the world. Now, I want to I want to make a uh, conjecture here on what the world's advice looked like just three years ago, just three years ago. And, and for the probably the decade prior to that, these are some of the things that I would argue the world told us to believe about money. Here we go. If you got debt, consolidate that debt to a new credit card and get a short term, low interest balance transfer and repeat as needed. Did you ever get that advice in the mail? A couple times, right? How about another advice of the world just three years ago? Do whatever, I mean, whatever it takes to buy a home because the market is only going up. Anybody get that advice? Yeah, okay. A lot of us got that advice. How about this piece of advice? Can't qualify for the home loan you want? Just state your income to whatever amount you'd like and you'll be qualified. What? Really? Don't raise your hand if you got a loan like that. <laughs> that was that was coming out of the world. Just, hey, if you can't qualify for the loan based on your documentation, based on your paycheck, just take this paper here and just write down what you make. And if it's high enough, you qualify. 
Congratulations. And that's advice. How about this one? Got equity? Take out a second mortgage and invest it elsewhere. Don't worry. The market is only going up. How many have listened to the advice of the world and are now paying the consequences? You see, over the last, uh, well, really, even for me, over the last uh, decade of my life, as old as I am, beyond, you know, beyond old here. Over the last decade of my life, I bought into items one and two. Hook, line, and sinker. You kidding? I bought into those items one and two right there. I, uh, I had a little bit of credit card debt, and I would, wow, look at these balanced transfer offers. Zero percent, no less, for a year. And it only goes up to, you know, 29.99 after that, but for a year. Wow. And do whatever it takes to buy a home, man. I remember my wife and I looking at the market and going, we've got to get in this thing. We've got to get in because if we don't get in, we'll never make a profit. We've suffered some of the consequences of buying into the advice of the world. And I thank God for it, quite frankly, because it has served as a wake-up call to me early on in life when, uh, that, that, that who I get my financial advice from matters. I remember actually, I don't know if Dave, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember discussing the home loan industry with Dave Bennett not three or four years ago. And we were talking actually about um, that number four there. We were talking about how, man, everybody we know is pulling out every dime they can from their house and investing it elsewhere and their house is going up. How awesome. And, and I remember Dave saying at the end of the conversation, he says, yeah, Neil, but something's not right here. Something's not right here. You remember that, Dave? And uh, I kind of looked at him like, oh, come on, Dave. Come on. It's going up. He was right. Something's not right here. And we listened to the world just three years ago and in the years prior to that. And this, is, this economy today is what we have to show for it. Oh, sure, there are other factors. The government spending, taxes, this, that, and the other. Sure, there are other factors. But I would argue that Consumers, that U.S. citizens listening to these pieces of advice have largely put us in the state that we're in. Well, there's good news. You see, lucky for us, the same world that got you into this mess have some fantastic solutions to get you out of it. Did you know that? That's right. The same world that got you into this mess have some fantastic solutions to get you out of it. All you have to do is listen to what they say this time. I know they were a little bit off last time, but this time they're going to be right. So make sure you write these down. These are the best solutions for you. Here we go. The world's advice today, just three years later. Got debt? You have rights. Call a debt resolution specialist and settle that debt for pennies on the dollar. How many commercials have you heard to that effect in the last year? Thousands? I hear them on the radio every day. In fact, I kind of wonder, during a radio segment, I, 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 I place a bet on whether or not one of these commercials is going to come up. And it comes up about 50% of the time. Is that good advice? Maybe. Number two. Got a high rate or adjustable mortgage? You have rights. Call a lawyer and sue your lender for predatory practices. You hearing that commercial lately? How about this one? Owe more than your house is worth? You have rights. 
Apply for a loan modification and reduce your loan. You have rights. There's a, uh, there's a victim mentality in our culture today, isn't there? There's something going on on the TV and on the Internet and on the radio and in our own mind from society that tells us oh, we've been victimized. We, now we, we, weren't, we weren't grown up enough to know what we were doing. And others took advantage of us. And therefore, it's within our rights to modify, to change, to cancel, to settle things that we signed our name to. I have no doubt that in the last three years, a good portion of those of us in this room have accepted at least one of these options. I believe it. I believe that Perhaps the majority of the people in this room have, have accepted or have, uh, have been the recipients or have sought out one of these options or more. And so I know that the matter of which I speak is an incredibly sensitive one. Incredibly sensitive. But I want us this morning to ask what this book says about these solutions. And my words today, I pray, are not my words, but are the words of Almighty God in His Word. Amen? And if we hear these words as not from a messenger, but as we hear them from the source of the message, I pray that we will change our hearts, repent if needed, and turn to a godly way of using our money and our finances. Remember that, friends, the same world that got us into this mess is the same world giving you these solutions. And does it ever occur to us to wonder what God might say about these solutions? I would argue that it's high time to start listening to the one who can really get us out of this mess. The one who we should be listening to for our money. And I believe that Ben Witherington is right. I believe that largely what determines how most Christians view money today and lending and giving and economics and all the host of the other matters is not the Bible, but rather cultural factors and influences. And I want us to change. I want us to change. I want us to be a people who are guided by what the Scriptures have to say about money and not by worldly solutions. So, as you know, this uh, series we have right now is on money. And uh, last week we looked at part one of that series. Part one was more money is not the answer. Money does not bring peace and happiness and peace. And that's where you've got to start. You've got to start with a firm reliance on, uh, on this truth, this maxim. Money is not the answer. It won't bring you happiness. And here we are at part two today. And I'm making the case here that we have two options. We can either be indebted to God or we can be in debt. And these are two life transforming choices. And then part three next week, we will look toward a biblical use of money, toward giving, toward stewardship, toward honor. But today we are in part two of a series on money indebted to God or in debt. And so I want to ask the question. 
What does the Bible have to say about borrowing and lending? The first question I want to ask is, should we lend? Should we lend? In Psalm 24, uh, verse 1, David says this. He says in Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. So now David, he's bringing up a very simple point here, right? He's simply arguing that, look, the world, everything you see, the cosmos, the universe, it is the Lord's. And everything in it is His. Everything. There's not one thing in this world that is not the Lord's. And yet, we see all the way back in Genesis, we see that God took a world that belonged to Him, that He made, that was rightfully His, and He entrusted it. He lent it to Adam and to Eve. In a very real sense, they were entrusted. They, were, they became like stewards of what God owned. They were borrowers, if you will, of God's world. Nothing belongs to us, friends. I want to start with that. It belongs to God. Nothing belongs to us. It belongs to God. That goes for your house. That goes for your car. That goes for your job, your income, even your family, your children. They're not your own. They are the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. We are but stewards of God's earth. John Wesley said it this way. He said, when the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you in this world, he placed you here not as a proprietor, but as a steward. As you yourself are not your own, but His, such is likewise all that you enjoy. And so we come to the question of, you know, should we lend? Should we lend? Well, look, look at what God did. Look at what God did from the beginning of creation. He made the world and He gave it to us. He lent it to us. He made us and entrusted us as a steward of His creation. Should we lend? Absolutely. The Bible, especially the New Testament, is replete with admonitions to lend and help and, and offer goods and money and service to those around us. The most fundamental rationale for it is what God did for us in giving us this world. And God has been gracious. He has freely given us this good creation. And the freeness with which God has lent us His creation is also the basis upon which He asks us to lend to others. I want to take a look briefly at what the Old Testament has to say about lending. And we're going to traverse Old Testament and New Testament today and, and go back and forth for a time. But we're going to pull apart some principles that may be helpful for us as we get into this idea of lending and borrowing and, and debt and, and what's appropriate and what's not. But first, should we lend? Yes, we should lend. And here are some thoughts from the Old Testament. First, the Old Testament law forbid Jews from charging interest on loans to fellow Jews. Now, think about it. The Lord, He gave up of His own cosmos, the universe. He gave it to Adam and Eve to be the stewards of it, to be the ones who conducted it. And He gave it to them freely and graciously and fully. 
And in that spirit, the Old Testament law declares that as we lend to others, as the, I should say, as the Jews lent to one another, they were forbidden from charging interest uh, to each other. You might say to the household of faith. Now, it's interesting, and if you read verse uh, 20, actually, let's go to 23.19 of Deuteronomy here. Uh, Moses says, quoting the Lord, You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. If we were to read the next verse, it's interesting because you can charge interest to a foreigner. But apparently you can't charge interest uh, just to your fellow Israelite brethren. So, particularly to the household of faith, the principle in the Old Testament is, look, no charging interest. Lend, don't charge any interest. Another principle from the Old Testament law, number two, was that uh, the Old Testament law canceled all non-property debts every seventh year. This was called the Sabbath year or the Lord's release. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 15. We're not going to turn there today. But every seventh year, all non-property, that is to say, uh, you know, the house, the vineyard, etc., the land, all non-property debts were canceled every seventh year in Israel. That's pretty crazy. Well, we'll get to why, why that was done, why that was accomplished. Number three here, the Old Testament law canceled all debts every 50th year. And this included property debts, houses, lands, vineyards. Every 50th year, this was called the year of Jubilee. You can read about it in Leviticus 25, verse 8. And there is, uh, there's a movement among, uh, among a lot of uh, uh, humanitarian groups, both Christian and non to, uh, to declare a year of jubilee in, in, this, in this modern world. Uh, they're particularly asking for uh, the debts of all third world countries to be erased in the spirit of jubilee. Um, what to make of that, I, I really don't know. I, I, I think that, uh, I think that it's, uh, it's interesting how the world is looking to this uh, ancient Jewish custom for uh, some ideas for what to do about our present situation in the world. Now, of course, friends, we're, we're not Israelites. We're not Israelites. We are not under the law. So inasmuch as what the Old Testament says about lending may be a good guideline by which to live, we are not obligated to live by this law, these guidelines. Instead, we are called to live by the Spirit of Christ. We are people of the New Covenant. And as such, we need to see what Jesus and the New Testament writers have to say about lending. Now, what's most striking as you consider the subject of lending is that in the New Testament, we actually see Jesus and his writers and the New Testament writers not only uh, not only largely embracing what the Old Testament has to say in terms of the spirit of it, to be very generous and liberal in terms of our lending. But Jesus and the New Testament writers go even further than that. Ben Witherington writes this. He says, look, in general, the New Testament takes an even more demanding approach to what should be done with our resources than the Old Testament. That's astounding. That means everything you just read in the Old Testament, now we're going to take it to the next level. We're going to take it even further than what you just read. Things that that we certainly uh, don't pay heed to in our society in this day and age, let alone between one another. What does the New Testament 
What does the New Testament have to say about lending? Let's take a look at what the New Testament has to say about lending. The first thing is this. Jesus encourages us to lend our material goods to others who ask. Plain and simple. Jesus encourages us to lend, to give out our material goods to those who ask us for them. The biblical basis of this is found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Jesus says, look, I'm going to lay it out simply for you. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be obedient to the call of God upon your life, here's a great principle to follow. Give to those who ask of you. You say, wait a minute, that, well, that can be abused. Well, sure it can. Do, do we suppose that, that every seven-year debt cancellations in Israel in the 50th year of Jubilee, do we suppose that those principles were not abused? Of course not. They were abused. And quite frankly, that's, that's why they have fallen out of custom among Jews today. But that doesn't negate the principle. Abuse does not negate the principle. Jesus says, hey, if someone asks to borrow something from you, as far as it depends upon you, lend it to them. Give to them. Be generous. Be very generous. Liberality toward all. Number two, Jesus urges us to not just give, but to cancel the debts of those who have borrowed from us. You say, what? Cancel the debts? Absolutely. He urges us to cancel the debts of those who have borrowed from us. Where do we see this justification? Well, we see it in a couple places. The first might surprise you. In Matthew 6, 12, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, most of us prefer the Lucan version of the Lord's Prayer, because in the Lucan version, we know that these word debts are substituted for the word sins. And that sounds a whole lot easier. But you see, Matthew uses the term debts for a reason. He doesn't just toss it in there as if to say it, it, it never was on the lips of Christ. No, Jesus here is using monetary terminology to describe how we are to interact with one another. And he says, look, as I have forgiven you, both spiritually and by means of justice, sending Jesus to literally pay your debts, your sins upon the cross, so also I want you to be forgiving toward others both spiritually forgiving and, I would argue, monetarily forgiving. You say, well, I don't know that, that this is with respect to money. It's interesting because just prior to this, Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. He's speaking about the basic necessities of life here. And if that's still not convincing, then elsewhere in, Luke's, uh, in, in the Gospels, take a look at Luke 6, verse 35. Here he makes it explicit. He says, but love your enemies, do good, and lend hoping for nothing in return. And so even if it could be said that Matthew 6.12 pertains nothing to monetary value, even if that could be said, which I don't think it can, Luke 6.35 is the icing on the cake that says that Jesus urges us to cancel the debts of those who have borrowed from us. Unless we suppose that this cancellation is limited to the household of faith, he says in Luke 6.35, we should forgive the debt of our enemies. Of our enemies. 
This brings us to kind of a third and final principle from our Lord. Jesus teaches that it is of the essence of righteousness to forgive the debt of another. To lend and wish for no return payment. For Jesus, an opportunity to lend is really an opportunity to give. An opportunity to lend is really an opportunity to give. Now, you might be thinking, man, this is great stuff. I like this. I'm going to take notes on this and I'm going to send this over to MasterCard when I get home. Right? Dear MasterCard, did you know that Jesus believed that we should forgive the debts of, of one another? I'm very hopeful, MasterCard, that you will pay heed to God's teaching on this matter as you send me my next monthly statement. Sincerely, I didn't want to say a name because I didn't want any of you there. It's me. Uh, Billy. Is there a Billy out there? Okay, good. This is good stuff. Boy, debt cancellation, forgiveness. I like this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to my creditors and say, hey, did you, did you look at this lately? Did you see what Jesus said about debt cancellation? Hmm. Ah, but thus far, friends... Uh, We've only dealt with the issue of debt as it relates to the lender. To the lender. The creditor. So far, we've said nothing of the matter of debt as it relates to the borrower. And so now to the borrower, we turn. And the question I want to ask now, after establishing the fact that we should lend, is should we borrow? Should we borrow? What does the Bible have to say about borrowing? Well, here are some thoughts from the Old Testament. We don't have time to look at all these verses here today, so we're going to summarize some of this. But first, national Israel, and by that I mean the, you know, the Jews as a people, as a, as a collective, were exhorted to lend, but not to borrow. And you can establish that from Deuteronomy 15:6 and 28:12. In other words, in the Old Testament law, you know, God laid it out for Israel. He said, look, I want you to be a, a great nation. I want you to follow me. I want you to be obedient. And one of the ways that you can be obedient to me and prosper is if you will be generous to the nations and yet not borrow from the nations. That was a clear calling of God upon the nation of Israel. Lend, but do not borrow. National Israel. Yet, number two, here we're more concerned about individual borrowing, aren't we? Individual borrowing was considered acceptable if... It helped to alleviate the one thing all such borrowers had in common. Poverty. Now this point, friends, uh, it cannot be established enough in our discussion of, of borrowing in the Bible. Individual borrowers in the Old Testament times, it was considered acceptable for them to borrow money to borrow goods, to, to, to receive some sort of help and assistance on credit, if you will, from their, their, their fellow Jew, if it helped to alleviate the one thing they had to have. This was virtually a prerequisite to receiving a debt. And it is the issue of poverty. Exodus 22, verse 25 if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, 
You shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. This is just one such example. But friends, a careful review. I would stand by this. A careful review of Old Testament passages on the receiving of debts, on borrowing, are uniformly related to the issue of poverty. The person receiving it was always poor. The person receiving it was always destitute. The person receiving a debt was always at wit's end. All those who received money, who borrowed, had this in common, poverty. I suggest uh, that principle, that, uh, that universal truth in ancient Israel is, uh, is far from reality in our modern Western world, isn't it? Raise your hand if in your household you make more money today, in your household, more money today than you did 10 years ago. Raise your hand. 10 years ago, do you make more money today than 10 years ago? All right, a good portion of you. Now, hold on. Keep your hands up. Everybody keep your hands up if you make more money today than you did 10 years ago. Now, leave your hands up if you are more in debt today than you were 10 years ago. I didn't see many hands go down. Quite a few. Okay, you can put your hands down. You see, in the modern Western world, the more money we make, the more debt we incur. Which actually flies completely in the face of the Old Testament principle of lending. Completely in the face of it. No one who was wealthy borrowed money. No one who was... uh, And I shouldn't even say wealthy. No one who had the basic necessities of life borrowed money. It was only the destitute. It was only those in poverty. It was only those who were beyond uh, beyond help. And you see, in the West, we incur more debt even as we earn more money. That's true of me. Uh, I would have had my hand raised. I make more money today than I did 10 years ago. And I am more in debt today than I was 10 years ago. No doubt about it. Why the change? Why the change? Why would, why would culture change so much? Could it be that Ben Witherington is, is right? I come back to this quote again. What determines how most Christians view money, lending, giving, one's economic lifestyle, and a host of related matters is not the Bible, but rather cultural factors and influences. You see, friends, society has conditioned us to be a credit-hungry people, and I ask the question, you know, are, we, are we addicted to credit? Are we addicted to credit? There's a lot of indicators that, that suggest we are. For instance, did you know that according to creditcards.com, by the time I finished this sentence, nearly 100,000 bank and credit card transactions will, be, will have been processed worldwide. That's 10,000 transactions a second. 10,000 a second! It's amazing. On credit. Or at least a bank card. Mainly on credit. Did you know that uh, 46% of U.S. households have credit card debt? And that's as of 2007. The number is likely higher today. And of those households who have credit card debt, uh, of those households that have credit card debt, what do you think is the average debt they owe on their credit cards? Any guess? Here we go. $16,007. Doug wins. Good job, Doug. The average default rate, 28%. 28% of credit card users default. 
on their card. Wow. The tide is turning, though. There's some, uh, there's some good indicators, too. Uh, the percentage of, of people who regularly use a credit card is, is actually dropping. You'll notice in 2007, 97% of the population at least once a month used a credit card. In 2008, adults, I should say. In 2008, it was down to 72%. In a year, that was right when the economy changed. In a year, it went boom, just dropped. And the next one. Do you own a credit card? In 2009, 81% said they owned a credit card. Today, only 71% say they own a credit card. So there's a lot of there's indicators here that our, our, uh, our nation is wising up a little bit. We're starting to look around and say, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here? What are we doing with all this credit? Well, we've, at, we've looked at it from the Old Testament side. What about from the New Testament side? In the New Testament, should we borrow Let's, let's ask that question. What does the New Testament have to say about that? I would argue this. Neither Jesus nor any other New Testament writer explicitly approves or condemns the notion of incurring debt. I traversed every scripture I could find on lending, on debt, on uh, uh, surety, on all, on all of these concepts. And uh, not once do I find in the New Testament... A, uh, a claim by Christ or any other New Testament writer that we should not incur debt. There is not an admonition against incurring debt in the New Testament. Um, the closest we get to it is found in Romans 13.8. This is what Paul writes in Romans 13.8. He says, Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, some have attempted to use Romans 13.8 as justification that we shouldn't incur debt. But, of course, if you just read the passage in context, you'll notice that one verse earlier, in Romans 13, verse 7, Paul says, Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, etc. So, clearly, Paul believed that we are indebted to pay taxes and customs to our governing officials. Paul isn't speaking here in Romans 13 about never paying another person monetarily. He's simply declaring that in relationship, in relationship to monetary payments to another, what we should, what we ought to ultimately owe another is not our pocketbooks, but our love. Let me say that again. Paul is declaring that in relationship to our monetary payments to others, what we ought to ultimately owe another is not our pocketbooks, but our love. Now let that sink in for a moment. In relationship to anything else we owe, be it taxes, customs, bills, debt, in relationship to any check we write, there is one check that is greater. There is one debt that is to, to be paid before any other debt. And that is the debt to love one another. Because in so doing, we fulfilled the law. I ask us this morning, are we indebted to God or are we simply in debt? Are we indebted to God? Do we believe this? That, that we want to be 
that the greatest debt we desire to have is a debt to love and care for one another. That that's what we owe each other. More than any bill I pay. More than any, any debt I owe. Am I focused on that debt? Or am I focused on other debt? Debt that in some cases has happened upon me through difficult circumstances. And other debt who, that has come upon me through my own willful choices of materialism and consumerism. Who am I indebted to? Who are you indebted to? Are you indebted to God or are you indebted to your debt? Simply put, does the Bible command us to abstain from incurring debt? I want to make it clear. Uh, the answer is actually no. As much as I wish it were yes. I almost wish it were. Because then, had I found an admonition that would just rule it out, it would probably make our lives a whole lot easier. But the, the Bible doesn't do that. And where the Bible is silent, I'm going to be silent. The Bible does not rule out incurring debt. But it does make good sense that the less debt we owe, the more likely we are to move closer to the heart of God. The heart of Romans 13, 8 behind me. And so I want to say a few, uh, few final comments about debt and about what the Bible has to say about uh, this practice. A couple of general principles that we need to take heed to. The first is this. Incurring debt is risky and can endanger your very livelihood. Incurring debt is risky and can endanger your very livelihood. First, the risk. Take a look from Exodus. We see here Moses speaking about if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and that thing becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. The one who is the one who has borrowed has to make good on the debt when when that debt has been injured or is hurting. In other words, you know, when, when, when the debt we owe comes due, we've got to pay up. It can be risky. Any debt that we incur, it can be a risk to us and to our own livelihood. As, the, as Solomon writes in the Proverbs, notice Proverbs 22, Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take away your bed from underneath you? You see, if we, if we put up our homes and we put up our assets, if we put up the things that, that we already rightfully own up against the debts, if the time comes that we can't pay those debts, what we have will be taken from us. Our bed from underneath us. It's risky. Debt is risky. And it can endanger your very livelihood, as we are seeing in our culture today. Secondly, incurring debt can become distracting and at worst enslaving. Incurring debt can become distracting and at worst enslaving. Of course, we've already seen Romans 13.8. Let's look at it again. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. You know, when we're in debt, we're distracted from this debt. When we're overwhelmed in personal debt, we are distracted from this ultimate debt that we are to owe one another. It is a distraction. And at worst, 
It is enslaving. Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Here's here's perhaps the, the, the best nugget of truth in the scripture on this topic. The borrower is servant to the lender. And, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 6, he says, look, you can only be a servant of, of one. You can either be a slave to unrighteous mammon or money, or you can be a slave to God. But you can't be both. And when we borrow and when we borrow and when we borrow and when we charge and charge and charge and incur more debt and more debt, we are becoming enslaved. Enslaved to the lender. And that slavery keeps us from being enslaved to the Lord. It prohibits us from paying the greatest debt to love one another and to focus on each other and the Lord. Lastly, and this is uh, uh, perhaps for me personally, I I, I really want us to, to hear this with humble hearts and open ears. Lastly, the Bible urges us that if we borrow, let us pay it back. Let us pay it back. Now, I know that for many of us in this room, we have borrowed and we have gotten to a point where we are unable to pay it back. And I recognize those times come. They come. Sometimes they come and, and uh, <clears throat> they come despite our most diligent efforts to keep them away. They come the, the time of overwhelming Debt comes upon us and we've been working as hard as we can to get out of it. And yet it's still overwhelming. But the Bible urges us, as far as it depends upon us, as much as we are able to pay our debts. I grow, I grow very weary of listening to commercial after commercial declaring that they can settle our credit card debt for pennies on the dollar. I grow weary of those commercials. I turn them off every time I hear them. I'm sure some of you do too. I grow weary of of those in our society who speak ill of their lenders when they themselves can read and sign their name on the dotted line. I'm growing tired of those who diligently seek forgiveness of debts that they willfully incurred and find the nerve To be offended when that credit card company or lender refuses to renegotiate that debt. I'm growing weary of that. And if we are looking at the Scriptures through a biblical lens, we are all growing weary of that. Because as far as it depends upon us, the Bible asks us to pay our debts. You say, but Neil, I've been exploited. I've been exploited. And maybe you have. I don't deny that. There are predatory lenders. There are credit card companies who have done unspeakable things to their, their clients. But Proverbs 28.8 says, He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. In other words, the Lord will judge them. The Lord will judge those who exploit you. And so if your cry to me today is that I've been exploited My response to you is, God will judge in His day, in His time. But let that not be a reason for us as Christians to render exploitation for exploitation. 
Let the exploitation of a lender, of a creditor, of someone who has charged us a ridiculous amount of interest, let their exploitation, let us respond to it, not with further exploitation. Let us respond to it with honor. We are people of a higher calling. We are not to listen to the world's advice and so compromise our integrity. We are to listen to the pure teaching of God's Word and conduct our lives and our fortunes by it. And the Scriptures teach us plainly, as far as it depends upon you, pay your debts. Ecclesiastes 5.5 It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not repay. Psalm 37.21 The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Now, this is not uniformly true, what, what the psalmist is saying. But he's saying it is generally the case that those who are looking to exploit do this. And so God is calling us to not be like those who exploit. To not go out and charge up all the debts so that we can fritter it away and walk away from what we rightly owe. Let the only reason, let the only reason you fail to pay back a debt be that you have no more money no more asset by which to pay it. I mean no more money and no more asset. Let there be nothing in your account. Nothing. No property. No coins. No stocks. Let there be nothing before you turn to your creditor and say, I cannot pay. It was not long ago that I read a news story on U.S. families who in the last couple of years, uh, the the reporter was uh, recounting story after story of the families that would pull out just a year ago, two years ago, pull out as much equity as they could, charge up as much credit card debt as they could with the willful intent to buy a home and then declare bankruptcy knowing full well their home would be declared untouchable in the event of default by the courts. These families pulled out everything they had, charged up every credit card they had, invested it in a home, knowing full well that upon declaring bankruptcy, that home would be protected and their asset preserved. Not a generation ago, such a person would be thrown in jail. And today they are praised for their cunningness and their wit. My fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we cannot imitate the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are called to a higher standard and we need to live by it. And if that means a decade worth of paying down personal debt, consider it pure joy that you are doing what is right and honorable in the eyes of the Lord. In 19th century England, the London Stock Exchange unofficially adopted a new manner of brokering trades. Both buyers and sellers would rely on three simple words to conduct business that day. The actual exchanging of goods and money, those would come later in the day. So you might say that at the time of trading in London, at the dawn of the 19th century, these three words served as sufficient credit upon which business could be carried out. Those words were dictum, meum, 
pactum. My word is my bond. My word is my bond. When I incur a debt, dictum meum pactum. When I use my credit card, dictum meum pactum. When I get a mortgage, dictum meum pactum. My word is my bond. As far as it depends upon us, let this be the way we conduct our finances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we have traversed over a a very difficult subject. And God, we thank You that You are a God of mercy. Because without it, we would all, Father, stand forever guilty before You. Father, there's not one person in this room who has not misused money. I have misused money, Father. I have charged up too much debt. I have acted in ways that are unbecoming of what a Christian ought to do. And I know for many of us, Lord, we're right there. We know what that's like. Father, today, let us renew again our commitment to being good stewards of the things you have entrusted to us. Father, that we would use our money wisely. Father, we may have fallen short in recent times. We may have acted in ways that we are not proud of, but today we repent, we ask for your forgiveness, and we ask for a time of renewal as we explore how to use our money again in the way that you would have us use it. And Father, we resolve as a people, as far as it depends upon us, we will do everything we can to be honorable in our dealings, to be honorable with our money. Help us, Lord, though. The temptation is so great. God, the temptation is great. Help us to be honorable with our use of money. Help us, Lord, to lend to each other in our time of need, to be gracious To not rack up money off one another, but to show kindness, liberality. God, thank You for mercy today. And thank You for a fresh start. Help us all now, Lord, to renew again a commitment to use our money in the way You would have us use it. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.